Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Solar Journey. My guest today is Christian Langen. Welcome to the show, Christian. Thanks. Hi. Hi, Christian. So, Christian has been in the uh, solar industry for 20 years. He has an entrepreneurial and business school background. And uh, proof of his early drive for business is that he founded his first company in 1999. Something, something with the internet. We'll, we'll come to that later. But <laughs> solar has been uh, his, the major part of his uh, professional career. So he's been in the solar industry since uh, 2003, when he moved with his wife to Australia and started a solar wholesaler in Sydney together with the Conergy Group. He uh, came back to Germany in 2007 and stayed in the solar industry and moved into wafer cell and module manufacturing, um, turning EverQ into Sovello as chief sales and marketing officer. That was, uh, by the way, next door to my previous job in the Solar Valley here in Germany, between Berlin and Leipzig uh, at the time. Later, he became CEO of the Global Residential and Commercial Business Unit for SMA Solar, a inverter manufacturer, one of the, the big uh, brands in, in that uh, sector. But in 2013, after 15 years in executive roles, Christian had his been there, done that moment so that he decided to become independent and uh, he has been helping entrepreneurs to build businesses in the clean tech space uh, since then. Today, on top, he's also the chairman of Oxford PV, um, one of the uh, upcoming perovskite uh, players in the industry. And Oxford PV may be the perovskite pioneer in the industry. He calls himself a free radical and is a frequent contributor on LinkedIn and at any solar industry event. So, Christian, again, welcome. Um, you just told me you're now in Finland. How come? Yes. Well, that's uh, mainly a private reason. My wife is Finnish. And although we've been together for 26 years, uh, we decided two years ago that it's finally time to move our family to Helsinki. Yeah. That's the Excellent. reason. Okay, excellent. Um, so, um, your main job now is, um, uh, a, being a helper for solar entrepreneurs. So why do, why do they hire you? What can you give example of, of your current projects? How do you interact with the solar industry? Uh, in many different ways. And I've been doing this for, for 10 years now in a broad range of projects. Um, right now, for example, I help a few investors finding the right companies to buy in this space and supporting building new business models out of that. Uh, those are actually some of the core projects I have right now. I'm helping the business model evolution of another player strategy process. So I'm reasonably well known in the industry. So I've been in the lucky position that actually over the last 10 years, I've hardly ever had to sell anything. And uh, that's really um, um, a positive <laughs> for me. Yeah. Always had the opportunity to pick interesting projects, uh, but I'm not, you know, I'm not like a management consulting company. I'm like a one-man show. Um, I do this as a trusted advisor and partner to all kinds of managers and entrepreneurs and founders. Yeah. Um, and by that, I stay really up to date what's happening in the industry. That's the other thing. So. It's really interesting to continue to see from another perspective what is happening there without wearing too close uh, ahead. I can see all aspects of what's going on here, which yeah. is really interesting right now, as you would know best. Yeah, there's a lot of movement in the market, and uh, I'm sure it's uh, interesting to to follow that from, from your perspective. And not to have the operational um, uh, duties. <laughs> yes. That's a big advantage and one of the reasons why I took that path. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but let's go back in time a little, not all the way, just a little. Um, you went to a business school. So uh, for many people who leave school, are re I'm ready to, to have to follow their own path. 
that's a difficult uh, process, a diff difficult time. So why did you choose this path, business school, entrepreneurial um, training? Um, and did you also think of alternative routes? Did you, how did you come up with, then with the final decision? Yeah, my alternative route would have been a technical career, engineering or, you know, more, because I grew up, spent much of my time with my grandparents on a farm. And my grandfather told me to use every tool you can imagine from, you know, welding, electric or gas, well, everything you can do with the tool I learned. So that, that would have been the other path. But I was also always interested in why people interact with each other in business and It tickled my fancy early on. So um, I actually just applied to this really good private business school, VHU in, in Falenda, which is quite known as an entrepreneur's, uh, very entrepreneurial place. And I got in and I felt, actually, that's a good, this is a good place to be. This is really interesting, very broad. Um, I personally believe in having a generalist view. Um, I see the value of a big range in what you do, doing different things, not too early specialization. So if you'd ask me for advice, it is don't specialize too early. Your life is too long for that. You see too many things, try to see many things. Um, you may do your most productive work when you're 50 and not when you're 25 mm -hmm. uh, because many things come together after you've seen a lot. And I think a business school um, can prepare you for that because it's more general what you learn there. But in that particular business school, it is really entrepreneurial. So there are, uh, it's probably one of the most entrepreneurial places uh, you can find for that. Okay. So it seems your your expectations were met. Um, what, what was the coolest learning when you look back from, from that uh, business school that you can still apply today? Uh, it's, I think it's a way of thinking. It's uh -huh. like, how do you approach something? How do you look at something? Do you see an opportunity in something in in the business that you see? You you take a different perspective at a question that you encounter. Um, you ask yourself: Is there a business reason why this has happened or not? Uh, does this technology have a real customer value and and advantage? We have very often situations also in in our industry where people just are in love with their technology, but they forgot that customers will only buy it if it does something for the customer. Mm. So um, give an example. When I was uh, later on at SMA, I was uh, telling the sales sales teams regularly, sorry, guys, but nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I want to own an inverter. Okay, that's just not, there is no genuine demand for something like an inverter because people don't want to own an inverter. Okay, They want to have clean electricity. And the competition is that power plug in the wall that's just there. What we're trying to do is trying to put 100 holes into their roofs, pull cables down to the basement, put seven boxes onto the wall, and tell them that's a better solution than the power plug in the wall where power is already there. So mm. you, know, you need to distinguish between you have a great technology, but what does it actually do for your customer? What is the, the customer value? And I think this kind of thinking, thinking from this customer perspective, is the one thing that um, you can take from a business school. And personally, it's the people you meet and the relationships that endure. I have friends that I still see like every year from there. But that's a different aspect, of course. Yeah, but still interesting. Thanks for sharing. Um, and uh, your business drive was not only talk, but uh, you, you founded a, <laughs> a company in 1999. Um You mentioned it's an internet-based company. Do you want to share what was yeah. your yeah. value proposition you brought to the table with that idea? Yes, yes. There was Earpreis.de was the name of this. Uh, Earpreis.de. This interesting. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh, we, um, typical business school thinking. You know, it came out of, uh, I was actually starting a PhD in production operations management. All right. Uh, and okay. I was at the university. Uh, and after about a year, I was together with the other PhD in my office we both thought you know what let's rather found a company <laughs> <laughs> and that's where this and that's where this started um so you stopped the phd was, program so much, yes i did yes yes All i right. did i never did a phd so okay i started um, one year in you said let's get a let's do business let's, yeah. okay. let's 
found a business in an old bread factory in Düsseldorf. Yes. Okay. Um, and the question, the question we wanted to address was: there are so many hotels and 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 airlines that fly with empty seats or have empty rooms, just because the pricing is too unstable, is too stable and not not variable enough. It doesn't really address what people are willing to pay. So, we were basically the first people out there um, to do something like the uh, variable pricing, customer um, driven pricing. Mm-hmm. So we would ask customers, "What do you want to pay for?" that flight or that hotel room that we'd offer that to the airline they said either take it or leave it via the internet but of course the challenges in 99 were completely different so you'd have yeah. to have a website that didn't have more than 100 kilobytes because half of your customers still had a beeping dial-up internet okay so uh, nobody was really willing to give their credit card to this obscure thing called the internet so the challenges were entirely different but um, it was really, really a big learning experience. It was partially successful. Some some part we sold, another part we had to close down. So I lived through the whole business cycle uh, with this, raised uh, a lot of money, uh, some good investors. Um, it was a really interesting experience. Wow, excellent. Yeah, qu- quite an early mover with that kind of uh, business concept. Now, it, of course, it's almost yeah. standard, right? I mean, every... Um... But in 1999, yes. that's, that's a, that was an early idea. Interesting. But then mm. solar popped up and you joined the, the solar industry yeah. in, in 2003. Why, why, why did you uh, move in that, that direction? I always had an interest for solar much earlier already. And then uh, another life decision, my wife had a great job offer in Australia and Sydney uh, with uh, her company. And I was like in between things. And I felt like, you know what? I'll come with you. Let's just go there. <laughs> so we went to Sydney. And after having learned how to surf a little bit uh, for a few months, I felt uh, the entrepreneurial uh, bone was tickling again. And I really wanted to do not just something, but something that that touched my heart and was interested in. And I did a <clears throat> bit of a review of what is the industry like in Australia and you know that because you were there actually before me <laughs> in, in, at the ANU I, I know and Australia had a great solar industry of mom and pop shops distributed around the country doing a lot of off-grid but it, there wasn't really a professional distribution structure so you'd have a few wholesalers but not really someone who could take this to the to the next level of professionalization. So when I happened to run into the, the founder of Conergy because they visited Sydney uh, and my wife and his wife were working together. So we went out for dinner. I basically just pitched to him, hey, you know what? This is, I'd really like to drive this here with a solar wholesaler because there's this gap in the market. And I think this is going to happen. And that's the business school thinking, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he was a very entrepreneurial guy and, and jumped on it. So like, okay, what do you need? Let's do it. And okay. uh, that's how it started. So I started the solar wholesale business with a laptop on my dining table. I started to build the infrastructure, hire the first people and got a forklift license, an Australian one, so I could unload trucks. Um, <laughs> and it uh, took off from there. So that was uh, quite successful. Um, and... Also another great learning experience. And my start into solar, of course, solar doesn't let you go once you're yeah. in. Well, it's uh, viral, right? at least for most. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, we, we'll talk about marketing and tech, et cetera, later. Um, but just in terms of uh, your career path, um, you told me that um, after being in various executive roles from for two years, for ten years, from two thousand three to two thousand thirteen, um, you had your been there, done that moment, um, and I think that's an interesting uh, phase. I think in your in your in your career, mm-hmm. and maybe also many others. Um, um, w- would you mind to share how that felt and how you dealt with mm-hmm. it? Yeah. I think it's not so much related to solar as such. Yeah. Number one, that's not really related to solar, but yeah. it's more related to 
many people think that when you make your way up the career ladder, then you have more freedom the higher you go, or you have uh, somehow your life gets better the higher up you are in the organization. And that's just not the case. It's just different. You have just different stakeholders. I actually have more stakeholders from all sides all of a sudden. And uh, I was just at that moment where I felt like, okay, I have a big responsibility. I was time at the time I was leading the global um, the residential and commercial business for SMA with about a billion euros in turnover and <laughs> there are 3,000 people around the globe. And it still didn't feel like you could move and shake what you wanted to do. Uh, and I really, I had this, all right, now I've done executive life for quite a while. I've been traveling too much. I didn't like that too much. Um, Really, there must be something else. And I've learned so much in this in the industry over the years. And from all parts of life, I founded a, the Inverter subsidiary in Japan, uh, for example, or I started with Koraji, uh, a business in Brazil and in the US and built factories here and there. So I'd seen so many different things that I felt like, I think I can achieve more if I just take that, try to condense it and help other people that are in maybe similar situations or situations that are that feel similar or have some structural similarities. I think I can achieve more than just continuing to slog on within this into in a line role, um, whether you're executive or not. Mm. And there was just a revelation, a, a, a moment uh, when I just decided I'm not going to extend the contract and I will actually go uh, yeah. that other path. Um, yeah. yeah. Happened over time. It didn't happen in one particular. There wasn't a trigger or there wasn't. It was just yeah. like, you know what? This whole executive thing is not really what everyone tells you it is or what you think it is, maybe. So yeah. uh okay, I've been there and I've done that and it's great. Now let me take go to other shores. Yeah. I don't know it's what a... is your experience in this. I'm I'd be curious about your own experience because you have a similar yeah. Of, yeah. Uh, Right now, um, yeah, um, right now I'm in a kind of similar situation, right? So we, um, mm -hmm. uh, I started a, a spin-off with Q-Cells and one of the thin film mm -hmm. uh, subsidiaries. Um, then I started a metrology company, Wavelabs, and uh, it's um, mm -hmm. still uh, successful up and running, but I quit my, my job as the CEO uh, pretty much a year ago, right? Um, mm -hmm. and all were good, uh, wonderful experiences, but there's always a time it felt then you, you, I, I achieved what I wanted to achieve and, uh, there's still of plenty interesting stuff to go, but, um, mm -hmm. yeah, kind of eager to do something else without knowing now what I want to do. <laughs> it just felt that I, mm -hmm. I don't have that, uh, ultimate uh, drive anymore. Right. Which I had in the in the early phase, right from uh, you know writing down the business plan, getting the first customers, building the company to 80, 90 people, and then uh, taking it to the next level. I thought that, um, that, that there there could be others who are now more interested in in doing that job. Right, and uh, right now mm -hmm. I'm also in a in a similar situation as you, as a doing a partially consulting. Um, Doing the doing the podcast, and uh, I'm also very happy now in that situation to let's say observe the market to look into different uh, new businesses. And uh, yeah. good part is that you you learn from the in that role that you that you learned a lot that I learned a lot over the last let's say 17 uh, years in my executive positions, um, and I'm happy to it's cool to share that with others. Yeah. And let's see where where this path will take me um, right now. I'm yeah, kind of enjoying the, the freedom that I've got. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a really important point in that. And actually, maybe the last aspect of this, it's really difficult to start enjoying that freedom. So I, because we've been drilled so much into, you're like a hardworking individual. And the toughest thing for me, I took this, I, I called it the, the Wednesday challenge. So I took a book, uh, and put myself at 11 a.m. in a park where all these business people go by and sat on the bench and read the book mm -hmm. and saw all these people in their suits and go by in the middle of Hamburg. And I listened to myself. How does that make me feel? 
Mm. And it's really tough. Because on the one side, you have the time, you're not, you're no longer, you know, on the other side, you have this urge of, oh, am I still a productive part of this uh, society here? What am I doing here? Where well, am I sitting here while everybody else is doing something? And, and it, it takes a while. It took me about half a year easily until I was a complete master of my time you know, yeah. mentally. And now, of course, I very much enjoy this freedom. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it is uh, weird. Um, and and after a year, it still is for me. So I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, it's it's. I'm definitely enjoying it. I know it's the right thing to do, but uh, it still feels, as you said, we are so much trained on uh, on uh, yeah, nine to five um, work life. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm 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 still searching and uh, observing. Um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we should talk. Okay. Okay. And it's a good way to just to look, yeah, to look to look into different things. And you can, you know, the good thing is uh, too many too many options, rather too many options uh, than too little. Yeah, yeah. We we should talk about uh, that maybe in a year or so and uh, see where where <laughs> my life took me. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, today you are also the chairman of Perovskite Tech Player, Ox, called Oxford PV. It's based in uh, England and uh, also in Germany. Um, we will talk about tech and markets later. Um, I would like to raise another perspective, um, which is about the, the role of the chairman, of a chairman. In my view, the role of a chairman in, in most corporations or the ones I um, was involved in, is often very badly executed. And I'm sure, of course, you're doing a great job as a, as a chairman. Um, or let's say the role of the chairman is underestimated or the role is not really well defined. There's many different expectations to it, even from the person who's running, who's, who's a master of that role. What's your, what's your take on, on that thesis that the role of the chairman is really... Uh, Badly defined, mostly poorly executed. I, I agree with you because think about what the context is of this chairman role. You have all these high-powered executives and experienced investors and maybe corporate people in there around you, and then the uh, expectation is so, so. So this is a particular culture that's in the board and 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 in there, which is this kind of high-powered culture, but. Those people don't tend to spend enough time talking about how do we want to organize ourselves? What are our roles? Uh, the soft aspects of, of this all. They don't spend enough time in that. And mm. uh, I mean, I've done in the, over the last 10 years also uh, uh, coaching education, uh, coaching executives and using a, a broad toolbox uh, of things. And I have to say that's one aspect that's really missing in many boards. You have to distinguish a bit among countries. Uh, in the UK, where I'm uh, in this chairman role, it's a more active role than, for example, in, in, in the German context. There, it's the Aufsichtsrat. So somebody is looking onto your hands as an executive to make sure you're not making mistakes. The, the name is already kind of telling you that the perspective is often a bit different. In England, it is much much more active. You have many more meetings. You are uh, more expected to be something like a positive sparring partner for the CEO. So I'm definitely a lot closer than um, many would be in in a similar role here in the German context mm. to this. So you know, speaking to uh, the executive team and and also within the organization, it's not it is a a more open uh, role. But you're right; it is not very well defined. And you need to find your way and, and be open about how do you want to live this. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a super interesting topic. Uh, it's it's not very often discussed, or at least I I didn't mm -hmm. come I didn't haven't come across uh, discussions and uh, or books about it, right? But I think it's a pretty uh, pretty blank, at least, definitely in Germany, uh, about the role of of, of this this person. Yeah. 
Yeah. And also the, uh, let's say, team match of the executive players, right? So um, mm. I think as a executive in the company, you look a lot more about team fit of your employees. And I don't see that aspect usually taken care of by the chair, by the board for their executive team, right? That's, that's an interesting part yeah. that I also observed, right? And, and, and a, a lot of uh, problems arise from that. Yeah. I think the most important part of the job is to properly orchestrate this whole thing because it's complex. You have these investors that have entirely different interests. You have you know, some experts independent on the board. You have the executive team. You have the whole organization. You have the outside world. And you're somehow there a backstop for the CEO towards the outside world. Then you are a conduit for investors towards the company. So it's different roles in that channel. But I agree with your point that we don't spend enough attention on, on cultural fit. I mean, the culture that a company has is the most important value driver. And we spend we don't spend enough time. So it's actually one of the first things I did at Oxford PV was initiate a vision, mission, culture, values workshop series driven from the board with all the executives and then with the whole team, with everyone, and that uh, will renew regularly. And it's super important that you take these so-called soft aspects, which are anything but soft, <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and and make them important when you choose executives as much as when you um, try to evolve the whole organization. So I fully yeah. agree with your point. Yeah. Cool. Um... I hope we see in person soon and uh, we'll have a real campfire in front of us. I'd love <laughs> to elaborate on that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, again, um, stepping back in time, you were part of the first boom and bust phase, just like me. Let's mm. say of the, let's, I would call the first industrial solar phase between 2000 and, and 2010. Um, and now in, uh, we have kind of a, let's say a third industrial phase where, you know, the second, I would say it was uh, China takes lead and takes the cost reduction to the, to the next level. Now China is dominating. And now I would see it's maybe a third phase is entering where manufacturing will become a, a global thing, not only a, a Chinese thing. And, um, mm -hmm. but maybe we can learn something from the, let's say, first uh, boom and bust phase here in, in Europe, particularly Germany. What were the reasons for the bust, in your opinion, and uh, what can be learned from this phase? I uh, Well, uh, there, are probably, uh, there are several reasons. And the good thing is now the structures are entirely different. So I hope we mm -hmm. talk about what is different today, what maybe give us a bit more hope <laughs> than in the past. I think in this first phase, where I was part of, you know, uh, building factories that ultimately got closed down, wafer cells and modules. Um, we didn't understand what set us apart. That was the first thing. Uh, so we, we were investing into technologies and then there were equipment manufacturers and <clears throat> these equipment manufacturers that worked together with us. And we didn't really try to look at what is the business model of an equipment manufacturer? Why is that relevant to my business? <laughs> okay. Okay. Now I told these guys, we developed together how to make the best cells. And what do they actually do with that knowledge? Okay. If you were to spend five minutes thinking about that, you would have realized that the business model of an equipment manufacturer is to build and sell equipment. So who's most interested in getting that equipment, which has the whole knowledge incorporated? It's somebody who wants to play big in that role. And it, it, it came together at a time when the Chinese government made the strategic decision, we want that to be a focus and took away uh, also unfair, also created some practices that some consider unfair, uh, endless financing, support of all, all kind. But ultimately it was us not understanding that we've built something that we're exporting that will come back in the shape of products that are equally good because they're made with basically the same machines, um, but cheaper. Mm. And I I think, um, I don't know, would, it be, would there have been a way to do it differently? Very, diff very difficult. I mean, there are some examples 
for example, uh, First Solar took an approach and said, we, we go in such a close relationship with the equipment suppliers, nobody will get our technology. All right, but of course, not everyone can, can do that. And it would have hindered growth on this side. Um, so I think now we're in a different, in a very different playground. Um, uh, times have changed fundamentally. The first modules you sold and I sold, I mean, I sold the first modules for three euros 70 per watt. And that module had something like 180 watts, similar size to what you have today. Mm. Okay, so that is a, that was an entirely different world for many, many reasons. If you were better in cost, which a Chinese were, that would make a real difference to a project. But now, if you are better by 10%, even 20%, uh, if you're the cost leader in the world, you are like three cents, four cents better per watt. That is a difference you can uh, bridge with other means, with better marketing, better service, proximity to the customer. It is not, modules are not that relevant anymore in, in the overall <laughs> scheme. So right now, the whole basis for competition has changed. And what has also changed is that uh, the Chinese are no, no longer the ones who have these, uh, who just have nothing and can start with the newest technology. Now they have all the big factories with the technology of the current mainstream. And the opportunity for us here is to start again on a higher efficiency level, on a better product level. We don't have this legacy 50 gigawatts you know, perk lines and, you know, we, we don't have that anymore. Now, now actually the tides have turned to a certain degree. And um, you hear often comments, oh, don't start an industry. It's got to be the same like before and the Chinese will take it over anyway. I actually don't think so. Uh, I think there are considerable challenges in particularly building the ecosystem here, uh, particularly building the supplier base. It's super tough to get even a junction box for you know, a reasonable price that's made around here or or many other components. Oh, it's the it's it's the whole ecosystem that matters. Yeah. But I think it's a vastly different situation we're in now. Yeah. What is your take on this? Yeah, it's a it's definitely an interesting phase, right? And uh, I mean, uh, you mentioned the building up the the ecosystem is a is a massive challenge. I mean, there are companies out there who do their manage the growth and they they uh, walk their path, uh, just like uh, let's say Maya Burger. And there's uh, Carbon now trying to set up uh, from scratch a new manufacturing site. There's the Italian um, consortium, um, many small players, module manufacturers um, who now think of a big, large step. Um, and for for longer time to come i mean you definitely they all need as, as they do now um use a material from from china which is uh which is totally okay i think um what i would be interested in is to see um if one of the big Chinese players then simply says when the conditions are fine, or like uh, for the for the US, they are defined and the Europe, Europe hasn't decided fully how it's going to look like. If they just decide, a Chinese player just decides, hey, let's set up a, a 30 gigawatt uh, factory in, uh, in Hungary. And how would that uh, impact the, uh, let's say, new, still small European players, right? Because uh, a Chinese player would have all the the, the supply chain issues solved. They have the the know-how. For them, it would be a small, fairly small step compared to uh, the existing, let's say, European or U.S. American companies or even Indian companies to to set up such a large operation. Right? Um, I disagree because it yeah. works well in the in the Chinese context. It's uh, definitely possible to put up a ten gigawatt factory. Um, yeah. Uh, it's not that easy to do it over here and they would encounter the same challenges all of a sudden you have regulation different processes it's, it, it's i don't think so actually i don't think so I, I don't think you can you can just say uh do a copy and drop it here and it'll be the same as as over there um yeah. i don't think so um and I, my perception is that uh, 
the Chinese players, and there's some really good Chinese players out there too, they are taking a different approach. Um, mm -hmm. They have realized that, for example, purely with, with producing the same thing but cheaper, you don't have a competitive value proposition anymore. Mm -hmm. So they're really investing more than Western companies right now in R&D, efficiency, advancing technology. Yeah. That yeah. is the thing that should worry us more. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, Longi, Trina, they, they have now a record, um, a, a tra um, fantastic track history of uh, of uh, world record efficiencies, right, in all sorts of uh, um, silicon-based technologies. And uh, talk, talking about perovskite, since you're close to, to that uh, technology stream, um, I learned that there's a 400 to 1,000 institutes uh, in, in China working on, on alternative thin film materials, like basically close to perovskite. And that doesn't really show up here in uh, outside China on the efficiency tables, right? World record efficiency tables or any reports, right? Because by now it's a pretty uh, closed shop in terms of marketing their achievements, uh, except for those ones needed for marketing of, uh, let's say, existing products. Um, yeah, it's it's an it's an open race, right? Um, and uh, I, I think we should always remain open for collaboration, right? I mean, we have this new, let's say, trends in uh, global um, global politics, and um, for various reasons. Um, um, I think important for, for all of us, I think, should be to to remain open for for new collaborations also across blocks. Let's put it this way. Yeah. Right. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I mean, I really I, I have a lot of admiration for what many of uh, the Asian companies have achieved. In, in there. And, uh, and yes, they, they should, will play a positive role in, in here. The planet doesn't doesn't care where Solomon comes from, to be honest. We need as many of them as we can manufacture. And for the next decade, we need as many of them as we can manufacture. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge is a different one. It is, it's not a winner-takes-it-all market. We always behave as if there's going to be the one winner who takes it all. That's not the case. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not even a highly concentrated market. And it, the level of concentration is not going up. It will go down because demand is growing even faster um, uh, than the capacity currently is still. And yeah, when it comes to new new technologies, you're right. There's a lot happening, uh, particularly with regard to perovskites. I remember when Oxford PV started this uh, whole perovskite thing. Um, there were like three scientific articles uh, per year, and two of them were from us. <laughs> and now it's more like ten thousand. <laughs> so, yes, there's a lot happening, and it's good like that. We need that next stage uh, this tandems and perovskites begins where silicon ends okay in terms of efficiency mm. and we need that next step uh it's it's important so i'm not fearing innovation i'm not fearing innovation from wherever it comes wherever uh, it comes it's really about there'll be many players that can be successful um, yeah. I'm quite sure that uh, the one I'm working with is one of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, you you mentioned the role of efficiency. Um, mm. In in my view, but uh, I'm, I'm interested to to learn your opinion. In the in the, in the early phase of the uh, let's say solar industrial uh, years, it was important to raise efficiency, bring down costs, just to be competitive to like the conventional energies. Um, sources, oil, gas, and nuclear. By now, solar and wind are, in most times, in most regions, the, the cheapest source of uh, electricity. So kind of that competition is one due to um, um, industrialization, mass production, uh, technology gains. So that the driver for, to, for bringing up efficiency is today a different one than it was in, in the past, right? Basically, now it's really just about the, uh, in my view, the comp about the competition between the the solar manufacturers, right? So to stay in to stay in the to stay in the market, not to lose against uh, 
against competition in terms of product uh, features? I think that's cutting it a bit too short. Yeah. The, the, the competition will soon be around suitable space. And if we, we need to install a terawatt per, per year, I mean, this year, my personal theory is that we're going to be between 350 and 400 gigawatts worldwide. Mm -hmm. And that, that needs to go towards a terawatt. And that will make the, the prime spaces to do that uh, will become rare. You will see that space becomes a bigger factor. And if you look at the purely at economics, modules are not the main cost factor anymore. It's everything around. You look at the US, how much is soft cost versus actual component cost. If you have the same project, but the same roof, the same system, but there's more power coming out, that is a very important economic driver. So it's not so much about primarily about competition among individual companies, but it is simply having a better, more resource uh, reserving uh, solution and that saves the space. Yeah. I think uh, that's the bigger driver. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's exactly the point, right? So, because if you can't uh, uh, so, um, offer these this high efficient module, you will lose out against your competition who drives the best economics. So it's really the, uh, yeah. the the competition within the industry rather than fighting against gas and oil, right? Uh, that fight is won. Exactly. You ask me, so at least, at least, uh, you know, at least. It's not one in the public opinion. Uh, we're always yeah, like, then yeah. I, let's I, say I technically, not politically. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our yeah. Constance fights with the with the IEA, for example, have been uh, proposing this has got to be solar, and then every year they have to shift it upwards, uh, then uh, yeah. make a uh, too low uh, prediction. But it, so the 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 industry, the the society in general, has not fully realized that yet. We know that in the industry, many people know it, but. It's not fully internalized, but you know I'm not worried about the cost of of any fossil alternatives. They simply don't have a chance. Yeah. yeah. Um. Let's move to a a different subject. Um. You uh, raise quite often the aspect of simplification of solar. Yes. So, what do you, exactly do you mean by that? And uh, yeah, can you give us an example where we are? and uh, what you foresee in the future. Yeah, I think I said it uh, in the beginning, I think we're making the life of customers initially quite complex from something that's super simple right now. So we're pulling the topic of electricity to the forefront, which is something that has always been in the back. In the back. For companies, there's just been one, one line in the purchasing, now negotiate a new electricity price, okay, we're done for a year. Uh, and now all of a sudden we fill that with all types of complex technologies that nobody really knows how to properly connect on the on the customer side. And it's difficult to understand. And we don't really have super good software tools to communicate that. And it is just, I think it's just a complexity that is holding us back. If we manage to make clean energy, distributed energy <clears throat> simpler from a customer perspective, that's what will drive uh, much more demand and much faster transition than any other thing we can do on the technology side. Yeah. And uh, do, do you have another example? So you mentioned the uh, eight holes in the roof and the in the basement for for installing the inverter. Do you have other examples? Right. Let's let's say talk about the residential solar system. And where do you see complexity and ideas for for simplification? Uh, a key aspect is combining electricity and heat. Right now, yeah. these are completely separated. Yeah. Now, you the, the, the electrician really doesn't touch anything where water flows through, and the, <laughs> the installer really doesn't touch anything that has electricity if you can avoid it. It's really tough for customers. It makes it tough for customers. You, we have to think this as an integrated, integrated item, and. I don't feel that if you have tried to build a house and you need a, some heating system and you want the electricity system, it is very complex to get that all done. You get like two quotes, 15 pages each from the one guy, the other guy, and then you need to somehow, there's nobody out there who can really make it super, super simple. Mm -hmm. Now you see business models that are, and companies 
and are trying to do this and approach it from the customer perspective. Uh, and, and, and that is a big, big, big field for, for innovation. Don't you yeah. think this is all very complex if you start to look into this? It's a one-time purchase. I mean, you don't do this every year. You yeah, do this you, once you, in 20 years. You, yeah. That's not something you, you read about and know about. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Um, I was approached in the last 12 months, particularly um, due to the, let's say, let's call it the energy crisis here in Europe, or particularly Germany, <laughs> because everybody now wanted to have a solar system, either for the, just a small one for the balcony, or if, if they own a house on their roof, right? So I, I saw all those quotes from around Germany, uh, southern Germany, northern Germany, and uh, it's mm. it's pretty complex, right? So uh, yeah. a kilowatts are mixed up with kilowatt hours. Um, there's a, you have to have like 60% down payment, like for a 30, 40,000 euro investment. Uh, it's a pretty big call. Um, no installation time uh, guaranteed. Uh, in terms of performance, unclear, right? Um, people are, as you yeah. mentioned earlier, afraid of their, their holes in the roof. What does it actually mean? What if I want to sell the house? Is it an extra value that adds value to my house or is it just a burden? Because the new owner might say, um, hey, there's a, that's a risk of fires due to the solar modules. Um, the complexity then with the electricity bill. So you have a supplier with, with your, let's say 24 seven, supply of, of electricity but then you're also supposed to have a storage system so how do they all interact and what's my actual saving so uh, people really get into uh, a uh, whatever english teacher now then needs to become a expert on uh, electricity markets mm -hmm. and uh, storage technology and um, uh, energy home management systems so it's 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 bizarre right so it's 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 definitely yeah. not possible and only Still, only the ones with the big pockets just take a decision and say whatever, right? And and the other ones need to become expert or or make take a risk that they choose the wrong installer and or the wrong technology, right? And so I I agree. Mm -hmm. and so that's why I find it interesting. But I don't know about the quality that there's kind of new players definitely in Germany like uh, 1,5 and uh, Npal who now take a different approach in terms of marketing and. Uh, offering com complete systems versus the, let's say, classic players. Um, and I um, think uh, what, what's important, part, right? So, uh, yeah, I, yeah. The, the really important innovation in there is that, I mean, our starting point from within the industry has always been technology. We're so much in love with technology, <laughs> but what really counts is the, is the customer journey, is the customer experience. Yeah. And I think very few players in the market have really thought it through from that aspect and very consequently took all the processes and just optimized them from the customer uh, experience. I think that's a difference. Uh, you said your name to uh, DZ4 also has been doing that. DZ4, and, yeah. Yes, and they have their own challenges like with increasing uh, interest, uh, maybe rental is not the best option and mm. uh, a range of other challenges. But really thinking this through from the customer side has been something that I felt has been missing. And the local small electrician, how can he do that? It's difficult. He needs to order 15 components from his wholesaler, gets all the data and drops that into an offer. Yeah. But how can he add this, this communication layer, I would say, towards the customer to make it easy for them? I think there's, there's room for improved software solutions. There's room for a lot of... Um, Again, it's the soft it's the soft part that's uh, that's missing. How do you communicate that? How do you translate what we do in technology and what it actually does to a customer and what is the process and take out some uncertainty of the process, as you said as well. Like how can you give some commitments by then it's going to be done and this is what it's going to do? And what we need from you is access to this and then you're fine. Otherwise, sit down and we'll do it. You know, it's too complex and uh, that's holding back. And I think in, in the commercial and industrial space, it's even more so. If you ask uh, the average owner of a, of, of a small company, um, they often don't have the, the expertise, but they have even more needs and even more opportunities 
to have already storage of all kinds in there um, that nobody knows to how to connect properly. So it's, I, I think the next wave of innovation will be simplifying decentralized energy from a customer perspective, using good process, good communication, good software, not so much the technology. Maybe we need an extra box uh, for communicating between all these components, but um, the innovation will really be in the customer experience. Mm. And do you see players in the market who are, are aware of this and, and following this path? I, th I think there's a growing awareness. Yeah. Right now, there's uh, the luxury of still doing business the old way and you're not being punished for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think there's an opportunity. Let me say it like that. I don't see uh, particular players that stick out very much. Yeah. Okay. So everybody the out business, there. You know, here's the business school guy again. Who sees yeah. Business everybody out there. there. You have an idea, hire <laughs> Christian, and uh, you can see the next best uh, solar company. In interesting, but I, t I totally agree from the, um, I not but I, I agree that uh, it's it's not simple. Yeah. Cool. Um, in our um, talks before this recording, uh, you mentioned uh, that you have special thoughts about um, the role of artificial intelligence in the in the energy transition with jet gpt and everything ongoing um, of course that's uh, ai is a very much uh, a topic which is on the top of the list of um, many many of our listeners where, where do you see ai in the in the, in the energy transition one uh, in one aspect like we said Just before this, I think AI can help to simplify this. It can help to summarize. It can help to grab data from different sources and pack it together into something that makes more sense to customers. I think um, it can learn to optimize uh, algorithms. It can learn to um First, get a good glimpse of what is really happening in your house. When, when what are the profile, low profiles? Where is really where are storage openings? Everything that is out there. I think it'll help, particularly in the analysis phase, and possibly also in in solution design. I think it's it's early days right now. It it is mainly a productivity tool. I'm I'm using it regularly for all kinds of things. It's an excellent productivity tool uh, to start and fight against the the toughest. Thing you have which is a blank page it doesn't give you all the answers okay but it gives you a start yeah. and that is overcoming a lot of the hurdles um so i think when it comes to improving customer communication um answering questions but also analyzing data again if you go back to the commercial and industrial side it's not so easy to understand what are all the energy flows and you may have different sources of data and Some is here, some is in the production system, and some is here, and there's something in the office. And whether we, when do we get power? You have external signals like price signals on power. So bringing this all together is something where uh, AI-based technologies can help and should help. Mm. Cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, now I need to jump again because that's really um, <laughs> very curious about about that topic um again jumping back in time uh let's mm -hmm. say the uh the previous uh, phases of solar let's let's call this there have always been large utilities um uh all companies industrial players like uh, bosch siemens general electric or uh, shell who were um involved in in the solar business right they they had their own manufacturing sites and uh but they lost lost out very badly right um even though they invested a lot of money into into solar um and i think for many people who have been in the industry um that's quite a puzzle right because uh, you could think <laughs> think that's their way out right 
that's that they have the money they have the management they have the technical expertise it should have been so easy for them to take it you know well beyond the level where we are right now um and since they never managed to do that uh, many <laughs> say that they used it only for for greenwashing the way what you would call it today right but uh so, so what's your take on that? Is, was it just greenwashing or did they really have a different approach? They had sincere interest, but they they couldn't do it because of whatever, management, competence, uh, different mm -hmm. culture. Um, yes. What's your take? Well, greenwashing is a part of it, but I think it's not the main part. Mm -hmm. The main part is that they come from an entirely different business structure and philosophy and management philosophy. I've been in the BP solar factory in Sydney 20 years ago. I mean, these guys were leading even in solar manufacturing, Shell and quite a few others. But they couldn't deal with, number one, their controlling mind couldn't deal with the volatility. That's the first thing. So this whole selling a complex product that doesn't have this easy business case and a functioning market that was all too fragmented, small, this whole small thing is simply not compatible with the, with their culture, not with the controlling mind of it goes up 30% one year and 20% down on the next. That's simply something that couldn't really it couldn't really deal with. Maybe the Bosch and the Siemens and all these players couldn't play, deal with that. I think if you take a really top-down perspective, what we see is the fight between the molecule world and the electron world. And they're very, very different in structure. Your business, if you're in the molecule world, you make oil molecules and gas molecules and all kinds of other molecules. Is you have this centralized plant, you have a big distribution system, pipelines, ships, all kinds of big things. Then you have a smaller distribution system, gas stations, and you have full control over that chain. You, you have like 10 charge points on the way and you basically control how the consumer gets this product. The electron world bypasses all of that. And it's not the decision of some corporate boards how this how the, the capacity in the industry expands by building another refinery, which is like 10 billion investment and takes five years. But now it's the decision of millions of individual consumers that put something on their roof and then use it right away that same day or the next day in, in their car. And that is a business structure that's so fundamentally different the whole decentralized world is so fundamentally different for the management, for the for the whole culture that you have in in all of these big companies. That whatever money they throw at it, it won't make a difference. It's it's the the culture, the mindset. Plus, they're not believable. I don't believe that I get the best clean energy solution from someone like Shell or BP. I'm sorry, I, I don't think it's believable. For me, it is not. I don't associate those brands with what I actually want to achieve. Right. I think uh, the ESG aspect, they become much more important. You will really think about what are these guys about? What are they about? And it's not solar. Uh, yeah, they will have successes. They will build large. Of course, they start with the large utility uh, plants because that's the closest in their thinking. The wind power, large uh, plants, offshore wind. That's where they will be successful because that is the same kind of centralized thinking. Mm. But when it comes to really, truly decentralized product, I don't think they have what it takes, whatever how much money they put into it. Mm. Interesting to hear, to hear the, the thoughts, the opinion of a free radical, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, thanks a lot for that. So um, we, we talked about a lot about, and, and thanks for sharing your opinions about the, the past and the future perspectives. So as my, my, my final question, right, to if, what's the single most important um, thing to do to get solar and wind renewables to, to, to the next level? That's a good question. If I would have the complete answer on that, uh, yeah. I think the best the best point about that is we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have everything we need. Technically, yeah. yeah. 
yes so it's it's more evolutionary it's more coming from the customer and the application side what you talked about before yeah. truly understanding why do people do this how do we get we are all convinced but hey not everyone is yet um, mm. you see the fight about the electric cars and and uh, prohibiting ice cars that you see these these trench fights mm. this, this is really it is really interesting how you can get to that level give more people the chance to realize that it's it's yeah, it's cheaper to have clean energy, but it's also better in every aspect for your life. And I think it is a lot of it is 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 momentum building. It's a slow. It's it's like a wheel that you need to a flywheel that is already moving at a reasonable speed, but it's just keep on pushing. I don't think we need any wonders anymore. I think the pathway is 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 clear. Uh, it just needs more of the same from more people. And uh, that's the very positive uh, answer and view that I have on this. So I don't think there's a there's any r rocket ship kind of innovation needed for that. Okay. Excellent. Christian, it's been a great pleasure. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks for sharing your yeah. solar journey um, and uh, your perspective on the, the future of our solar industry. I wish Thanks. you all the best. And... Uh, Please keep up your role as a free radical. Thanks a lot, Christian. I will. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thorsten. <laughs>